This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. This morning, uh, as you look at society around you, as you look inside your own heart, you may be like this beloved character, Charlie Brown, who's just screaming, can't anyone just tell me what Christmas is all about? You know, in 21st century America, uh, Christmas is really a season... And I want to tread lightly here, but really, Christmas is a season of warm sentimentality. When you think about it, it's a season of perpetual hope and goodwill and cheer. It's, it's 25 to 30 days a year where we're supposed to just be nice to everyone. And it's a season of giving. It's a season to be merry and bright. As if the other 11 months out of the year are just non-existent, Right? And we're supposed to just set aside all of our humanity for this one month uh, out of the year. And then when you think about moralism and relativism that so characterizes uh, 21st century Western culture, uh, moralism that basically says that we're just to be good people and to do good to all. Or when you think about relativism in the sense that uh, there is no one truth, just find your truth and live it out wholeheartedly. And so in a culture that is so personified by the isms of our day, whether it's moralism or relativism or humanism, those play really well with the warm sentiments of Christmas season. But when you start looking at the scriptures, you start hearing a breakthrough from God that Christmas is really about so much more than man has made it. We have, through reductionism, reduced Christmas to the least common human denominator. And in doing so, we have lost the richness and the theology and the true meaning of what it's about. And so last week, I set all of this up by helping us think through the incarnation. And last week, if you want the sermon in a nutshell, I'm about to give it to you in just a minute or so. Last week, we looked at the big picture truth that Jesus is God in the manger. That was last week's big picture truth. Jesus is God in the manger. And I did this by looking at the great hymn text, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we fleshed out some of those phrases and some of the words that we see in that hymn text. And I traced it back to scripture and showed you how the, the hymn writers, Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, found that text directly from the text of scripture. And we talked about the incarnation, the doctrine that says that Jesus Christ entered into human existence on planet earth without losing any aspect of his deity. That he laid aside his kingly crown, that he laid aside his kingly robe, and he entered into our world so that he might pull us up towards his through repentance and faith in his person. And then, since we have experienced his incarnation, since we have experienced him entering into our world, we have now been tasked to go out into the world and we are to be agents of incarnation, incarnationally living in other people's lives, in other people's worlds, to invite them in so that they may enter into God's world. That was last week's sermon in a nutshell. Well, gee, Chris, if you could just do that week in and week out, we could really get to lunch early, right? But then we would lose all the richness of the text, so we're not going to get that. 
This week, I want to continue thinking about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So last week, we saw that Jesus is God in the manger. This week's big picture truth is Jesus is the Savior of the world. And as we heard the scripture being read by this great cartoon character that has just become uh, such an iconic aspect of Christmas in America. A Charlie Brown Christmas is going to air for the 51st time, 51st consecutive Christmas season, uh, this Christmas season. And, And that element is always so special in that program where Charlie Brown cries out, can't anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And of course, Linus goes back to Luke chapter 2. And the apex of that paragraph in Luke chapter 2 is verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The the old text of this verse says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those. Goodwill toward men. And this is where derives much of the warm sentiments and the reductionism of Christmas is derived. And it is derived because of a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of the text. This morning what I want to show you, rooted in Luke 2.14, fleshed out through Hark the Herald Angels Sing, And then looking at a host, a systematic uh, selection of texts from the old and the new, I want to show you how Jesus being born in the manger is pointing us towards Jesus being Savior of the world. We're going to see this through at least six different titles of Jesus that are either explicitly or implicitly written in this great old hymn and also found in Scripture. And the first one is this. As man, Jesus demonstrates humble servanthood. As man, Jesus demonstrates humble servanthood. And Philippians chapter 2 is found probably the single most definitive text in the New Testament describing the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus left his kingly robe, left his kingly crown, the Jesus who had existed from all eternity and existed into, entered into our world and lived incarnationally among us. And the text says this in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The hymn writer writes, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, and mild he lays his glory by. The writer of Philippians, Paul, says that the creator himself, the creator himself becomes a slave 
to his creation. Verse 7 says that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Literally means taking the form of a slave. Think about that radical truth this morning. The creator becoming a slave to his creation. And the writer goes on to say that he became a slave to his creation so much so even to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're going to look at that more in just a moment. So when the hymn writer writes, uh, mild he lays his glory by, Jesus is not ceasing to be God when he incarnates to planet earth. He simply becomes human. He's not taking anything away from his nature. He is adding to his nature. And he doesn't use his deity for human gain, the scriptures tell us. But the scriptures tell us he intentionally laid it aside for the sake of serving and dying for humanity. You see, now culture will read this text and say, see, Jesus came to give us a great example of how we are to serve each other. Now that he does. He does give us a great example. But that's not the primary reason for which he came. Jesus came to become a servant to us, a slave to his people, so that he may make us royalty. As man, he demonstrates humble servanthood. Number two, as light of the world, he illuminates truth to our darkness. As light of the world, he illuminates truth to our darkness. The hymn writer writes, light and life. To all he brings. Light and life to all he brings. Back in Isaiah chapter 9. and one, Which is one of the great prophetic chapters of the Old Testament. About the coming of Jesus Christ. Written hundreds of years before his arrival. The prophet Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 9-2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness on them... A light has dawned. It is crucial to understand the nature of this light of Jesus Christ. When you go into the New Testament and you go to the book of uh, the Gospel of John, at the very beginning of John's Gospel, you're going to hear echoes of Isaiah 9. Because in John chapter 1, the writer of John writes this In him was life, and the life was the light. Of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus Christ Himself, in preaching to the religious leaders of His day, in verse 12 of chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you listen to the current context where we live today, you get to Christmas, and there are Christmas lights everywhere. One of the Christmas traditions that I had with my family every year is we would load up in the car, and we would just drive all around the county, and we would go into different subdivisions, and we would just look at Christmas light. We were light peepers. You know, people come here to be leaf peepers, right, in October and November. We were light peepers. Any other light peepers in the room? Anybody else do that with their families growing up, right? Yeah. And so we love lights, as a matter of fact, when you go to the malls or when you walk down the streets of downtown, when it gets to be near Thanksgiving, we know that Christmas time is coming because the lights are flooding the trees 
all throughout downtown and all throughout our malls. And lights are part of Christmas for a really good reason. Because Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And Isaiah chapter 9 says that of the people walking in darkness, on them a light has shined. Now we have interpreted this to mean that each one of us must look inside of ourselves to find that burning light so that our lights might shine. And if we would just all collectively work together, then we can be a greater beacon of hope and light in this world to overcome all of the hate and the wickedness and the evil. Does this sound familiar? This characterizes our present day where we live. This is the common words of sentiment and vernacular of a secular society. Pastor Tim Keller gives a very helpful uh, explanation of what it means for Jesus to be light and a correction to our misunderstanding as a culture of what it means for light to be in the world. He says, the Bible doesn't say from the world a light has dawned, but upon the world a light has dawned. The point is that this world is a dark place. That needs, the point is that the world is a dark place that needs a light to come from outside of it. This means the end of cheery statements like, if we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. No, we can't. We don't have what it takes. Jesus is the light from outside of us. Even our light that we think is light is not truly light compared to God. I remember a few years ago, we, were, uh, we go annually to our New England students' retreat, our spring retreat in April. And this year, uh, we were going to uh, New Hampshire. And I remember driving up to the retreat center on that Friday night as we always do, and it was on Lake Winnipesaukee. And uh, I was driving through all of the winding roads of New Hampshire to get there, and it was just a, a very cool, rainy, foggy night. And it was so foggy, and, and the, the fog was so dense, and the rain was so misty that even my bright headlights were only showing uh, probably an eighth of a mile in front of me. I, I could barely see. And I'm driving through all of these uh, beautiful mountains and I'm driving past all of these beautiful brooks and this vast, beautiful, shiny, shimmering lake in the middle of New Hampshire. But all I could see was right in front of me. It was dark. It was foggy. It was cold, rainy. But then I remember waking up that next morning and all of the weather had blown away. And on that morning, the sun rose over that lake, and I walked out of my lake house there, and I'm looking out at the beautiful blue sky, and I'm looking at the white mountains in the distance, I'm looking at the sparkling reflection of the sun off the lake, and it was like blinders were taken off my eyes. Light shined in the darkness. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that I had gone to Lake Winnipesaukee that night and I had drove, uh, driven through the winding roads of New Hampshire and all I could see was an eighth of a mile in front of me and then I just left that night. 
And I went throughout the rest of my life and said, oh, yeah, I went to Lake Winnipesaukee one time. It was just a dark, cold, dreary, ugly place. It was quite depressing. But I had a light, and it was shining all around, and all I saw was darkness. Well, Chris, you, you should have stayed, right? Chris, you should have waited for the sun to rise the next day. What an imperfect metaphor of Jesus being light in the world. You see, we wake up on a daily basis. And, and because of the hardness of our hearts and because of the darkness which we live, uh, we think that we're living in light. We think that we're being good people. We think that we're doing what God wants us to do. But metaphorically speaking, we are simply driving around and walking around in existence with an eighth of a mile visibility in the dense fog with only our own headlights to shine. But what's waiting for us if we would turn from our sins and race towards Jesus is Jesus, the great sun, the ultimate sun, the ultimate light of the world would shine his light upon our darkness and we would have our eyes open to a whole new vista and a whole new landscape of how to view life and view God and view ourselves. Upon those walking in darkness, the Bible says, a light has shined. Jesus is the light of the world. Three, this hymn text, as well as the scriptures, teach us that Jesus is Prince of Peace. And as Prince of Peace, he offers reconciliation with God. As Prince of Peace, he offers reconciliation with God. And here, brothers and sisters, is where we see the apex of the Christmas story. Here is where we see the ultimate meaning of Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Or peace among men on whom he has had favor. The hymn writer writes, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And the very beginning of that third verse, he writes, Hail the heaven born Prince of Peace. Now, the phrase Prince of Peace, the title Prince of Peace, comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 with several other titles of Jesus. So that goes back to Isaiah 9. But when the angel announces the birth of Jesus, now I alluded to this a little bit last week. We're going to flesh it out a little bit more now. When that angel announces the birth of Jesus, and that angel is joined by a whole army, joined with the heavenly host is what Luke 2.14 says, which means a multitude of angels, thousands upon thousands, myriads upon myriads, Greek for a whole bunch of angels, right? That's what we said last week. And they just exclaim in a loud moment of worship, glory to God in the highest. We have to stop for a moment. What would cause all the heavenly beings to break forth the skies on planet earth to begin worshiping in this way? Can it simply be just so that there can be momentary ceases of strife and fighting on earth? Could it be because we founded the United Nations after World War II in order to prevent future wars? 
When the great irony of the United Nations is that it was founded to foster world peace and to bring cooperation among nations on earth, and there has been a higher percentage of wars between countries after the founding of the United Nations than before. Now, this isn't a political argument of whether the United Nations should exist or not, but to, to explain that mankind just cannot stop doing what mankind is good at. Is fighting among ourselves and having strife between hearts. And isn't it interesting that this time of year, we, we hear people talking about global peace. I mean, we, we, we hear the hippies, right? Just talk about, man, just give peace a chance, right? I mean, that goes back all the way to the 70s. So give peace a chance. Let there just be peace on earth. Well, well, I'm just a pacifist. I'm not really for war. I'm just for peace. And it's very easy for us to say those warm sentiments while ignoring the war that's going on in your own heart. It's very easy for us to call out the murderers in the streets of Chicago or the streets of Roxbury today in Boston while ignoring the murderous heart you have in anger towards your brother or your sister. It's very easy for us to, to, lo to lob insults at our politicians who can't get along when we can't even live peaceably in our homes between husbands and wives. It's very easy for us to kick the can and, and take the spotlight off of our hearts and focus on the strife and the enmity that's out there without ever dealing with what's in here. When the angels... Break forth in ecstatic worship and say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he favors. The angels know the enmity between man and man. The angels know the enmity between God and man because of our sin. And the angels know. The angels know better than the average person walking planet earth today who this child is. The angels know this is God in the manger. The angels know this is Jesus, Savior of the world. The angels know the great multitude of the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation, who are going to profess faith in God through Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. The angels know that there are going to be millions upon millions upon millions of human beings who are going to become God worshipers through this child, Jesus Christ. That's why the angels break forth through the skies in heavenly celebration. Because this child, the Prince of Peace, is bringing reconciliation between God and man. Because as man, he's going to be able to identify with man and then speak to God on our behalf. And as God, he's going to be able to enter into our existence and speak to man and relate to man. On behalf of God. So you have the God man. And so Jesus Christ the God man. Takes the sinful heart of man. And the holy hand. The sinful hand of man. And the holy hand of God. And brings them in reconciliation. Through repentance and faith. And as a follower of Jesus Christ today. Aren't you thankful for that? This Charlie Brown. Is what Christmas is all about. This 
is what Christmas is all about. In Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about this peace between man and God. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 11 and he writes, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Have you been reconciled today? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that God has reconciled your sinful heart to the holy heart of God? This is what Christmas is all about. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I began our time today by talking about how uh, Christmas in America is really surrounded by uh, a, a whole batch of warm sentiments and characterized by a lot of different isms, whether that's moralism, relativism, humanism. Tim Keller goes on to argue against the common cultural sentiments by showing us why they both miss the point of Christmas. He says moralism is essentially the idea that you can save yourself through your own good works. And this makes Christmas unnecessary. Why would God need to become human in order to live and die in our place if we can fulfill the requirements of righteousness ourselves? Relativism is essentially the idea that no one is really lost, that everyone should live by their own lights and determine right and wrong for themselves. The all-accepting God of love many modern people believe in would never have bothered with the incarnation. Such a God would have found it completely unnecessary. But since we know that the human heart is depraved, and since we know that the human heart has no light in and of itself, and since we know that there is no peace in our hearts with God on our own, we know that the incarnation is completely necessary. We know that Jesus, not only being God in the manger, but also Savior of the world, is the great good news of Christmas. Because we know how desperate we truly are. As Prince of Peace, Jesus offers us reconciliation with God. And that is the greatest gift of Christmas this year. For as Son of Righteousness. Son of Righteousness, the hymn sings about. As Son of Righteousness, Jesus imputes perfection to our account. As son of righteousness, he imputes perfection to our account. So the good news keeps getting gooder. Want to make sure you're paying attention. The good news of Christmas continues to get greater, right? Not only does he offer us reconciliation with God, he also Credits to our account perfection. Now here's the great, uh, the great depth and meaning of salvation in Jesus. I fear that for many of us who have been around Christian things for a long time, becoming a Christian is simply walking down an aisle. Becoming a Christian is simply asking Jesus into your heart so that you might go to heaven when you die. Now, if you become a Christian, do you go to heaven when you die? Absolutely. Is that true? Absolutely. 
But if that is the only meaning of what you perceive as being a follower of Jesus Christ, I would argue to you that you have completely missed the boat on what this is all about. It's not just about getting myself fixed. This isn't just about becoming a better person. This isn't just about making sure that my eternal destination is secure because you could get the destination and and completely miss the one who's offering it to you. The great need of the human heart is not to be fixed. The great need of the human heart is not just simply to be forgiven. The great need of the human heart is ultimately to be made perfect. But how in the world do you and I become perfect when there is nothing perfect in and of us? Just as Light, if we are going to have light in our life, it must be an alien light. It must be a light that is totally unearthly. You follow? If you and I are going to be made righteous, if you and I are going to be perfect as God requires for entrance into his kingdom, then that perfection, then that righteousness must also be an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of us. And so just as a light has dawned upon us, when we repent of our sins and place faith in Jesus, we also have an alien righteousness imputed inside of us and credited to our account. So here's the beautiful picture. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophet says that there is one named the Son of Righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. He will heal the human heart, but he will also make the human heart perfectly righteous as God requires. And so not only are we reconciled to God, but then we are credited with the perfect, sinless record of Jesus on our account. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 verse 9 can write, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, meaning by simply doing good works. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you stand before God, And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What will be your response? Now the temptation is going to be, Father, every Christmas I wrote a check to the homeless. Father, when I was crossing crossing Merrimack Street on December 11th, 2016, there was an 82-year-old woman who needed help. And so I grabbed her hand and I helped her across the street. And then I remember volunteering at soup kitchens. I, I remember, uh, I, I pursued adoption. I adopted international children. There were all these great works. Father, look at what I did. You have to let me into heaven. And I would submit to you that there are even Christ-loving Christian people who are going to be tempted to say something along those lines. But if you are a Christ follower today, if you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, do you know the only fitting response to that question 
If God were to ask you, why, my child, should I allow you to enter into my kingdom? The only fitting response, Father, you shouldn't. You really should not allow me to enter into your kingdom. For I am a vile, wicked sinner. I I live among a people of unclean lips, and I myself am a man, or I am a woman of unclean lips. But Jesus, but Jesus, Father, Jesus lived the perfect life I was supposed to live and I repented. I placed faith in him and you credited his perfection to my account. So Father, don't look to my record to be the grounds by which I enter your kingdom. Father, go to your files and look at the perfection of Jesus. That's my plea this morning. And he will say, my child, enter my good and faithful servant. Not because of my good works, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did on my account. As son of righteousness, he imputes perfection to our account. So here is the great paradox of the Christian life. I, Chris James, am a very imperfect man. But in the eyes of God today, brothers and sisters, Chris James is perfect. Because I have the record of Jesus on my account. Is the record of Jesus your account this morning? If not, if not, then keep listening. Keep listening. Because number five, as crucified Lord, so how do we get there? How do we get that perfection credited to my account? As crucified Lord, this Jesus, he dies the death we deserve. He dies the death we deserve. One of the great theological ironies about the life of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus is that Jesus, yes, was born in a Bethlehem manger, but Jesus was born to die. Think about that. Jesus incarnated in order to die. I mean, there are very few of us who would say that the whole point of my life was to die. Right? I mean, what what would that make the dash? You know, I mean, on your tombstone, there's going to be a date of birth and a date of death, and there's going to be a dash. And the dash is so important because that dash is life. That's where your life was lived. And who among us would say the whole purpose of my life was to die? But Jesus, the great king, the one who existed before time, entered into our world, and he was born to die. But the great hymn writer writes this, and I can't help but smile when I sing this in Hark the Herald. Born that man no more may die. That's a great line. That's great poetry. Born that man no more may die. Let's unpack this. Because we are sinners. Because we have violated the commands of God. Because our hearts are wicked and sinful and his heart is pure and holy, there is a chasm. We cannot exist in the presence of God. 
But more than that, our sin deserves punishment. I mean, think about this. We, think, we say that God is a good God, that God is a good judge. What good judge ignores wrongdoing? If a judge on planet earth just turned a blind eye to murder or pedophilia or robberies or rape, we would say, that's a bad judge. That's a bad judge worthy of impeachment, wouldn't we? Because a good judge makes sure that crime does not go unpunished. So because God is a good judge, God is going to make sure that every wrongdoing is punished. God is going to make sure that every white lie and every murder, whether it's light in our eyes or whether it's heavy in our eyes, every crime will be punished. Every sin will be punished. But here's the question. Who's going to pay? There are only two people who can pay for your sins. You or Jesus. Those are the only two options. God has not given us a middle way. He hasn't given us a third option. It's either you or Jesus. So here's the great exchange. As crucified Lord, he dies the death we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the greatest passages in the New Testament to describe this. He says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news. That's good news. You see, if you've been here today and you're hearing all this talk about needing new life, and you hear this talk about being a sinner and the chasm between man and God and, and the enmity that's there and the need for reconciliation, you see, really and truly, that's a depressing thought. And if you're feeling the weight on your shoulders, then I think what I would say benevolently and compassionately is the scriptures are having their intended effect on your being. But it would be a tragedy. And it would be a travesty of epic proportion this morning if we simply sat there and allowed that weight to remain. It would be depressing despondent news this morning if we just stopped. But when we read 2 Corinthians 5.21 and we hear that Jesus died the death we deserve and God made this great exchange where he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that I, so that you, so that we might become the righteousness of God, there is our hope. There's our season of perpetual hope, brothers and sisters. As crucified Lord, he dies the death we deserve. But let's go one step further. Because as Christians, we can be very tempted to just keep Jesus on the cross. We can keep Jesus on the cross in just a perpetual perennial crucifix. And where Jesus is hanging on the cross for all time. Here's the truth, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus dies the death we deserve. But thanks be to God, he didn't stay dead. The whole hope of the gospel is that Jesus 
died, yes, but Jesus also rose to new life. And here's the great truth this morning. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there would be no salvation. Dying wasn't enough. If he had just died, we would have died with Jesus. But the scriptures go a step forward. As risen king. So see, as crucified Lord, he dies the death we deserve. But as risen king, he now imparts new life to us. He now imparts new life to us. The hymn writer, we, through the hymn writer, we sing, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. In John chapter 3, we have one of the most famous exchanges of Jesus in the Gospels. And it's Jesus talking to this very religious man named Nicodemus. And I want to read this in this entire context so that we can place ourselves in the story. Beginning in John 3, verse 1, the scriptures say this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he go enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God Unless he is born again. We need a new birth. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is his identifying with us in our humanity. Our second birth, our second birth, being born again, is our identifying ourselves with him. And what paves the way for this new birth? What paves the way to being born? born again. It's the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Jesus being resurrected from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this, Jesus' resurrection was a first fruit of our being resurrected from the dead. In other words, he was the first. Since he was raised from the dead, you and I get to be raised from the dead. Because Jesus has experienced eternal life, we now get to experience eternal life. Romans 6.4 says this, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that same Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Everyone on planet earth is born a physical birth. At least I hope so. 
or there are some of you who has some explaining to do. <laughs> Every one of us is born a physical birth. We are born um, through the water of our mother's womb, right? Everybody is born once. And everyone dies once. So this is what every person in humanity has in common. We all are born and we all die once. But there's also a second birth and there's also a second death. And here's the great hope of Christmas. That through this Christ child, through repentance of your sins and faith in who he is and what he has done, you may experience the second birth. You can be born again. And the scriptures tell us that everyone who has been born a second time through the second birth will never experience the second death. What is the second death? See, everybody dies the first death. It means you physically die. The second death is that eternal death, that eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. And the, and the greatest travesty and the greatest punishment of the second death is not hell. It's not even the flames. It's the separation from God. It's the separation from God and the eternal justice of his hand. Everyone is born the first birth. Everyone dies the first death. But only some experience the second birth through repentance and faith so that they will never experience the second death. But if you've only experienced the first birth, never experiencing the second through Jesus, you not only will experience the first death everyone encounters, but tragically you will also experience the second death which the Bible tells us God desires no one to experience. I'm not sure what's on your Christmas list this year. Maybe it's an iPad or something else with an I before it. But the greatest need of your life is not going to be found under the tree this year. It's not going to be in your inbox through an electronic gift card the greatest need of your life is to have new life. To have the old pass away so that the new can come. To put it in Jesus' terms, the greatest need of your life today is to be born again. Not my words, not our denomination's words, but the words of Jesus. Remember last week I told you that the incarnation... One of the greatest titles of Jesus is Emmanuel. And his name means God with us. And this morning, one of the great uh, applications of that verse could be just pondering your heart. It's not just God with us. It's God with me. So what is Christmas all about, Charlie Brown? It's really about life and death. Because the birth of Christ is only the beginning of the road to his death. And his death leads to his resurrection, which then leads to his giving new birth to myriads upon myriads, upon whom 
are many, among whom are many of you. So here are our questions this morning. Number one, do you know Jesus as God in the manger? Do you recognize in that dirty, dusty cattle stall, in the company of cows and sheep and dirty shepherds, lies the eternal God in human form as a helpless baby? Do you know Jesus as God in the manger? Two, do you know Jesus as Savior of the world? That this baby did not come just to give us a good example. This baby did not come just to be uh, one option among a plethora of gods of our choosing on planet earth. This baby didn't come just so that we can say that we have light within ourselves which we must shine to make the world a better place. This Jesus came as an alien outside of this world to come shine on us, to dawn on us, to be the Savior of the world so that He may take us to the next world. Thirdly, do you know Jesus as Lord of your life? Do you know Jesus as God in the manger? Do you know Him as Savior of the world? Do you know Jesus as Lord of your life? If you don't, here, here is how you become a Christian. You, come, you become a Christian by recognizing that you're a sinner. You become a Christian by recognizing that you are desperate apart from God. You come to Jesus as you are. Your temptation could be, I need to clean up my life. I need to tidy things up. I need to get things right at home. I need to figure all of this out. And then I will come and present myself to Jesus when I get things all together, that's a fool's errand. Hear my heart. You don't get your life together and come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and then through months and years, he will help you get your life together. That's the great reality of Christmas this morning. So you become a Christian by recognizing you're a sinner. You come to Jesus, by recognizing you don't have things together and you repent and you say, Father, I don't want to live my way anymore. I want to turn from all of that way of living and I want to live like Jesus says I'm to live. And so I place faith in him. Would you come and help me live this life? And I'm going to give you some truths this morning. It's not all magically going to go away. You'll, you'll still struggle through some things. As a matter of fact, your life will still look like your old life in many ways. It'll kind of come and go. Uh, that's what it looks like for a lot of people. But it's called the sanctification process. And, and glory to be to Jesus that 39-year-old Chris doesn't look anything like 14-year-old Chris when he became a Christian. And, and Lord willing, if I get to live to be 60 or 70 years old, that 70-year-old Chris won't look like 39-year-old Chris. And that is the great hope of the Christian life, that he will continue to just knock off all those rough edges and sand those rough edges so that you'll look more and more like Jesus every day. If you'd like to become a Christian, if you'd like to talk to a pastor or an elder or an elder's wife, of what it would look like to follow Jesus with your life, you can respond today. And one of the ways you can do that is just notate that on your connection card, and we will follow up with you. You can place that in the offering basket. We'll follow up with you this week. You could also come and approach me after the worship service this morning. I'd be glad to talk to you and point you towards someone who can counsel you through that decision. But wouldn't the greatest thing for Christmas this year 
be around all of your holiday gatherings and around that Christmas dinner table to say thank you for all the gifts that you've given to me today as family members, but can I tell you the greatest gift I've ever received? Let me tell you about something that's transpired in my life in recent weeks. And we here at Mill City would love to be a part of that in your life. Father, today, we praise you for the Christ child. We worship Jesus as God in the manger. And we profess Jesus today as Savior of the world. Father, we know that Jesus saves because your Bible tells us so. But we also know that Jesus saves because there are so many of us in this room whom we can say, He saved me, the least of these. I pray today that your spirit would work in this place and that your gospel would go forth and your word would perform its work. I pray that for those who are just considering the words of Jesus, considering what they want their lives to be, Father, break down the walls of resistance. Father, break down the excuses. And I pray today that you would draw men and women to yourself. And I pray that they would repent. I pray that they would release control of their life. I pray that they would look to Jesus and through eyes of faith say, I believe, I believe. Help me in my unbelief and make me into the man, make me into the woman you want me to be. And then I pray that you would give them the boldness and the courage to reach out and tell somebody about it. Father, I pray for those of us who are born again in Jesus today. I pray that you would just renew our hearts in love and adoration for the Christ child. That we would look with expectancy for what you're going to do in our lives based upon the evidence of what you've already done in our lives. And then I pray that as we leave this place today, that as you incarnationally lived among us, I pray that we would go out from this place as messengers of your hope, incarnationally living in our neighbors, families, and friends' lives. And we pray all these things through the name of Jesus. Amen.